Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to keep on top of the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day. Check out our newly revised smartphone app. I usually don't like consuming news on apps, but this one's really great. Uh, it's a really good way to conveniently listen to the podcast as well as our our other podcasts. And、uh, don't forget to sign up for our SubChina Access program, which gives you all sorts of prerequisites that you are sure to enjoy.、Uh, SubChina is a feast, of course, of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I am Kaiser Guo. I am coming to you today from the Seneca South Studio in downtown Durham, North Carolina. Joining me from his home in Nashville, Tennessee, is the one and only Jeremy Goldcorn, editor in chief of SubChina dot com.、Uh, And don't forget, in his culture, they punch back. Some little Xi Jinping-inspired humor. <laughs> Jeremy, <laughs> greet the people. Hi, Kaiser. Hello, people. Uh, yeah, uh, which which culture is that? <laughs> I'm not sure what your culture is. You're sort of intercultural these days. And and what is the Chinese for punch back? Is it like 还手 I mean, and, and is punch back the right translation of that? I'm not sure what he actually said. Anyway, I don't know because the only reports were in English. Right, 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 right. So today we're going to talk about tobacco, Jeremy,、uh, and it's appropriate, I suppose, that I'm just a stone's throw from the old American tobacco campus here in Durham.、Uh, this was the heartland, really, of the old tobacco industry in the U.S.、Uh, American tobacco actually left this city in the '80s, I think, but luckily for us, it left behind all sorts of cool warehouses and factory facilities that are now home to really cool, you know, shops and bars and lofts and startup spaces and restaurants and are, you know. Filled with hipsters, <laughs> Jeremy.、Uh, is tobacco a big crop in Tennessee? It is, in fact. I think it's one of the biggest, the big three cash crops.、Um, one of the others that I recall is soybeans. So you know, people are worried about the trade war.、Uh, but tobacco is big, and people smoke a lot here compared to California or the Northeast. It sort of feels maybe like twenty years ago in other parts of the country as far as the smoking goes.、Huh. Although not as much as China. And you know,、uh, one of the reasons I'm so interested in the subject today. Is I was a long-time heavy smoker in China, and you were、uh, a, a big fan of its cigarette packet designs,、uh, and、uh, a close observer and participant in the uh, very uh, deep uh, so- smoking culture. So <laughs> I find、uh, the subject very fascinating、uh, that we're going to talk about today. I-, I actually have my own personal connection to tobacco. I should probably disclose up front here that the whole Guo family、uh, really. Rose to wealth and stature in you know that great metropolis Uyang County in Henan,、uh, beginning in like the well the early 1900s I guess before my my grandfather was born.、Um, my great grandfather and his brothers built their whole fortune on the back of some a treadle powered cigarette rolling machine in the village of Jiangdianjie. Before、uh, one of the sons actually diversified into a still more profitable. Uh, more powerfully addictive, smokable substance.、Uh, oh, really? One, yes. Yeah, I'll tell you about that <laughs> I, one day. I knew about the tobacco. I didn't know about the opium. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> one, one drug at a time today. So today it's tobacco. So joining us from Stanford University is Matthew Coleman, associate professor of anthropology at Stanford. Matthew is a cultural and medical anthropologist, and he is editor and a major contributor to an excellent interdisciplinary volume called Poisonous Pandas. Chinese cigarette manufacturing in critical historical perspective, 
and it looks at the cigarette industry in China, past and present from a variety of angles. The book does have an academic sounding title, but I've been plugging it on the show for a while because it's a really fun read. It is. So, Matthew, we are delighted to have you on the show. Welcome to Seneca. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's a delight to have you. Maybe we could start by asking you what initially led you to an interest in tobacco and cigarettes in particular as a subject of inquiry. (laughs) Sure. Well, first off, let me just say again, thank you for having me. I'm a big fan of the work that the two of you do, and it's, uh, it's really quite nice to be able to share what I've been working on with the two of you and with your audience. So... Cigarettes. Uh, how did I become interested in cigarettes in China? You know, I started going to China in the 1980s, fresh out of an undergraduate degree from University of Wisconsin, and uh, spent about two years there in the late 80s, trying my best to learn Chinese and get as immersed as I could. And probably somewhat like the two of you, finding that initially most of the people I was able to interact with were men. And they were young men, and they were wanting to befriend me. And I was very interested in befriending them. And a medium for that quite regularly was cigarettes. Oh, yeah. And then uh, in the 1990s, I went back for another two years for dissertation work. And that was work that was looking at disability, uh, disability rights, and it ended up being quite a big project that resulted in a dissertation in my first book. And um, during that time, I was in villages, I was in Beijing, and again, most of the people I was interacting with uh, wanted to uh, share their joy of smoking or to uh, talk about their frustration with cigarettes. But as time went by, I came to realize that a lot of the good friends of mine, their family members, had been really significantly affected by cancer and other kinds of chronic disease really closely attached to tobacco. Mm. And as I was moving beyond that first book, which was something that ended up being a lot about the Chinese state and how the Chinese state thinks about uh, improving the health of the population, I became really interested in imagining what the second big project I would do would be and how I could move to thinking about how the state is entangled both in the politics of promoting life, but also the politics of taking life and and how tremendous harm is generated with one hand and resources are put towards helping and healing with another. And the cigarette just became a really fascinating way for me to explore that. Yeah. Um, and here I am about 10, 15 years later. Matthew, maybe you could give us a sense first of the scale of tobacco production and consumption in China. Sure. I, I remember it, it peaked, what, just a few years ago, like two and a half trillion cigarettes. Um, yep. I think it was either you or it was the author of the preface uh, had some pretty amazing stats about how many times you could circle the earth with a year's worth of cigarettes or, or <laughs> yeah. it would like reach the, you know, the 93 million miles to the sun and, and nearly back or something like that. And um, also, Matthew, perhaps you could talk about the scale of death that results from cigarette smoking in China. Yeah. Sure. If I may, could I just step back and say that all the statistics and that we're going to be talking about in China need to be understood and appreciated on a kind of more global, worldwide scale? Because this is a story that my uh, co-authors and co-editors in this volume and I tell about China, but it's we go to great uh, lengths to tell details about what's going on in China, but to help our readers appreciate the fact that this is 
not uh, China poisoning its people. This is a worldwide phenomenon. Tobacco is the number one cause of preventable death around the world today. In the 20th century, the century we just wrapped up, 100 million people died of tobacco-related disease. And we're now in a new century where projections are showing that that's supposed to grow to over a billion people dying of tobacco-related disease in the 21st century. Good God. Uh, so big numbers. So this is a, a worldwide phenomenon. And in you know the United States, over a half million people every single year die of a tobacco-related disease. More women in the United States today die of lung cancer than they do of breast cancer, something that's not widely known. Now, going to China, what we've seen is that in the 20th century, like a number of other countries, the cigarette has been seized upon by the state and by entrepreneurs as a tremendous moneymaker. Yeah, yeah. Um, so cigarette production has grown in China from the early 1950s, from the time of liberation, from about 80 billion sticks a year to, as you said, Kaiser, to a peak of about 2.5 trillion sticks a year or two ago, which is, I think if my calculations are right, about a 2,400% growth just uh, at the second half of the 20th century. Good God. So what we know is that uh, today about 300 million Chinese citizens are daily cigarette smokers, probably double that are people who are exposed to secondhand smoke on a daily basis, and that we have very high rates of smoking among men. And given the rates of smoking among men, it's kind of extraordinary how low the rates are among women. Rates among uh, men over 20 are well over 50%. And for women, the rates are as low as 2%. Wow. So it's a really significantly gendered phenomenon, uh, which raises all kinds of questions. And it's it's something that one of your authors talks about that we're going to get to. Um, let's start, though. I want to I ask you about efforts at, at deterrence. And they, they, they seem pretty tepid to me. They're pretty weak. I mean, what does it actually say on the warning label of a Chinese cigarette pack? I mean, I think it's it's like it's <clears throat> like I don't I haven't seen anywhere else in the world where the warning is just so so weak. Yeah, it's it's been pretty weak. I mean, it's it's pretty weak in the United States, too, when you look at uh, cigarette warning labels compared to some countries where so kind of the the global health standard or global health target is to have half of the pack of cigarettes covered by graphic warning labels. And actually now tobacco control advocates are pushing for the complete removal of any branding. Uh, so we just uh. have brown paper bags uh, wrapped, I mean, cigarettes that are just uh, with no branding whatsoever. That, but That's the way it is in Australia already. Oh, really? That's yeah. interesting. So Australia has been leading the charge in that. So what we have in the U.S., what we have in China, are text-based warning labels. And the warning labels are, yes, uh, pretty feeble. When uh, they move to the front of the pack, from the side of the pack, uh, the China National Tobacco Corporation was able to get the fonts chosen in a way so that they would basically just disappear into the coloring of the of the hmm. of the packaging. And, and what, what does it say, Matthew? It says, uh, right. Right. Smoking so that's is been harmful the Xi'an Yohai Jiankang has been the 
has been what we've seen for years and years. There's been a little bit improvement on that, uh, but not much. And, you know, that language, we could talk about it later, but that language is is not just happenstance. She and your hygiene Kong, what does that translate? It means smoking, smoking damages health. is harmful to health. Right. So that ties into a whole set of, it's not just the warning labels that are, are pretty pathetic. It's the way global health has approached tobacco. Right, right, right. Matthew, you note that the tobacco industry in China uh, just hasn't been the subject of much scholarly work since 1949. What accounts for this? You know, I don't have a clear answer. You know, inside of China, colleagues of mine tell me people who are historians at major universities or the social science academy say, you know, when they've tried to talk to colleagues and mentors about doing work on tobacco, people say, ah, you know, that's that's there's nothing hot there. There's nothing really interesting. So there's people have been discouraged. I think outside of China, I think a lot of people see cigarettes and smoking as old hat, as something that's pr- largely been solved and there's nothing really interesting there. Because, you know, all politics is local and what we see locally in places like Durham, Nashville, Palo Alto is a lot fewer people smoking. And it seems on the surface... In the immediacy of the world that I run in, I would say generally. Certainly Palo Alto. <laughs> yeah. That there, it's not really a problem. So it's just not a hot topic. So, you know, um, so that that's part of it. The other piece I would say is in terms of health problems that get a lot, a lot of attention. So health problems that get a lot of attention are often outbreaks, infectious diseases, which become significant for a variety of reasons, but just raise a lot of anxiety. Um, Ebola. Yeah, think Ebola. Scary stuff. I think HIV in the 1990s. So there's part, partially it's that, but also cigarettes don't produce a very good packageable and incitable victim. The victim that's generated through the cigarette smoking biography is someone who sees the warning labels and we're told just ignores them and goes on through their adulthood smoking and they only have themselves to blame. And what happens is what we found is there's a tremendous amount of self-blame that people suffering from lung cancer and cardiothoracic problems directly linked to smoking experience and their family members feel a lot of that kind of self-blame. So, um, you don't have, say, what we saw in the 90s and early aughts with HIV, where you have a very active victim community, uh, or we'll say with breast cancer, what we've seen occurring. So it just gets short-circuited. The kind of victimology that you need to generate a politics for people to stand up and pay attention, for academics to write books. It just gets short-circuited. And there's a history to this. It's it's not by happenstance that we yeah, have and this. So I'd be happy yeah, to talk yeah, about you're, you're that. You're very upfront about you know the purpose of the book that you, you've, you've put together here. I mean, I, I think if I may paraphrase that, you know, there's a lot of pussyfooting around who the real culprit here is. And you have all this focus on consumption, on the behavior of smoking, you know, which generates that kind of self-blame while it ignores the industry itself. And of course, government policy that's, I mean, it's not only just permitted, 
uh, and protected yeah. the cigarette production, you know, but it has actually encouraged the cigarette industry. So I guess I'm surprised to learn that this real culprit has been ignored. I mean, not just in China, but really globally. I guess I hadn't really turned my head around that problem. But what, what do you explain mm-hmm. this tendency that you talk about? to go after smoking as a problematic behavior and not target the industry itself. I mean, even the World Health Organization, you know, in its first international health treaty, you know, this framework convention on tobacco control, uh, as you point out in your book, it doesn't go after the industry or the policy. It just goes no. after the demand side. Why, no. why is this? It seems just wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, here we have the number one cause of preventable death in the world causing, you know, year to year now, six uh, uh, more than 6 million deaths a year. In the United States, 500,000 people dying a year. And uh, you have this, as you mentioned, this global health treaty, the world's first global health treaty, uh, a major feat. It got 150-some countries signed up for it. And it was created in the late 1990s, and countries started signing on uh, at the turn of the millennium. And it's a document that's filled with all kinds of demands that are really about targeting individual smokers and figure out ways of intervening to help them help themselves. While this document has very few lines of text about the industry itself. Now, from what I can tell, to answer your question about that, is that when some of the people first got in their mind to, to develop this global health treaty, they hoped, they desired to have a supply side document or a document that was more equally balanced. Right. But as it made its way through the halls of governments around the world and the WHO, it was changed. Hmm. such that it could be a document that 150-some countries around the world and most significantly major cigarette-producing countries like the United States, Germany, China, and other countries would agree to or not try to block. So we should note the United States has not signed that treaty. The United States doesn't like to sign treaties, uh, but it put a lot of pressure itself on the treaty in the final uh, years of negotiation to also get it watered down. Uh, So I've been told by people who are involved. And that's come from a lot of pressure from the industry. But it's also come from kind of the internal dynamics of the linkages between governments and tobacco. So we've mentioned this briefly, but it really needs more discussion, is that big tobacco grew up with the rise of the nation state. And really vitally central here was money and the flow of money from a crop that you grow in sandy, crappy soil to something that you sell at a tremendous margin. There's so much money to be made in tobacco. It's just extraordinary. So is that the simple reason that the yeah. Chinese smoke so much and why China produces so so much money? It's just the money, stupid. I mean, when, uh, you know, provinces yeah. like Yunnan derive such a huge... I simple answer. It's definitely one of the answers. Hmm. It's definitely one of the answers. And what we've seen is tobacco profits and taxes in China surge just in the last few decades to you know quite an extraordinary level. So profits and taxes inside of China from domestic tobacco production and sales. And we need to let our listeners understand that most of the cigarettes sold in China 
are cigarettes that are packaged out of tobacco that's grown in China. And we can talk about the seed stock and the history of that. That comes, that's a global story. But you buy a pack of cigarettes in China today, it's from tobacco that was grown in China and packaged in factories in China. So over 98% of all the cigarettes sold in China follow that story. Foreign brands occupy a tiny, tiny piece of the pie. So all of these cigarettes sold in China today over 2 trillion sticks per year, today generate $140 billion per year, $140 billion per year in profits and taxes, where in 1981, roll back to 1981, it was only $1 billion US dollars per year. So we've gone from 1981, $1 billion per year in taxes and profits to $140 billion in that was 2012. My God. And when I say profits, some of the listeners might say, oh, well, the profits uh, go to these companies and the shareholders. No, because one of the features distinctive of the Chinese tobacco market is it's a state monopoly. It's controlled by the central government and cigarette factories were nationalized after 1949. And what we've had since then is a nationalized tobacco economy. And so profits and taxes, it's, it's, why do they even call it profits and taxes? It's all state income has been, a, has been as you mentioned, Jeremy, a, a really important piece to all of this. And that, that applies to imported tobacco too, I assume. The, the state collects a, a hefty import tax. and yeah. That's right. But the big story, there, there is an enormous story, a worldwide story t- to be told about the expansion of companies like Philip Morris and British American Tobacco uh, into Africa, into Asia. There's an enormous story to be told. Uh, But that story doesn't really chart onto China because China, even after signing the World Trade Organizations, has kept in place a lot of trade barriers that makes it extremely difficult for foreign tobacco companies to sell in China. And they've filled the gap quite Mm. nicely. Matthew, one of the things that I particularly liked about the book is the whole historical overview that it provides. Um, Maybe you could offer kind of abbreviated history of the cigarette industry in China, uh, you know, from the period between the introduction of cigarettes at the turn of the century uh, to, to 1949 first. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting story. And for you know anybody who's fascinated about China and things and machines and people and gender and personalities and government and intrigue, it's all there with uh, cigarettes. Oh, yeah. So tobacco starts to find its way into China in the 1600s. It spreads quite quickly. People are growing it from the south to all the way up to Beijing. It's smoked. It's chewed, but it's mostly smoked. Then by the end of the, as we kind of get into the kind of late Qing, you start to see the introduction of snuff. And many of your listeners have seen beautiful Chinese snuff bottles, which became kind of part of the accoutrement of of the literati. So by the end of the 1800s, some significant things happen that make the, the rise of the cigarette possible. So two things, and I'll try to be as brief as I can. And both of these go to are right where you guys are living, that whole area <laughs> there, the U.S. tobacco belt. So two significant things happen in that area. So one 
is that in the late 1800s, a former slave working in a tobacco barn inadvertently allows a fire in a tobacco drying barn to get much hotter than ever intended. And what he discovers is that if you raise the heat much higher than previously done, you can change the chemistry of the leaf in such a way that you produce a leaf that when crumpled up and smoked is a kind of smoke you can inhale. So Jeremy, you said you smoked for a bunch of years. Did you inhale, you know, that that line? Did you inhale? I imagine you inhaled. I did, I inhaled. You did inhale, right? And and <laughs> uh, it, it provided you, I can assume, during much of that time, a kind of a rich experience of inhalation, of flavor and and all kinds of things. Maybe you could fill 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 us in and fill our listeners I'm, in. On yeah, what that yeah, it's like. supposed to, but I'm supposed to not believe that anymore. I'm supposed to think it's very yucky. So I, I'm <laughs> okay. not. I'm not. But, but yeah, so, yeah. But you, what you right. have to understand is so tobacco is something that is consumed around the world from the kind of the 15, 1600s onwards. But it's only until the late 1800s that a kind of tobacco that you can inhale starts to come onto the marketplace. So that's what we call flu-cured tobacco, the flu-curing, the drying at a specific, at a high level, and using a flu to make sure that the heat that is generated goes up and out through a flu so it doesn't contaminate the tobacco with nasty nastiness. Right. So we have this invention of a, of a way of manipulating the pH of tobacco so you can in, inhale it, and it becomes so much more addictive and you don't need as much tobacco to get your fix. It's like freebasing cocaine, right? It Very much so. And actually what we see is the manipulation of the pH of flu-cured tobacco takes a, another shift in 19, 1950s and the 1960s in the United States and they literally start freebasing tobacco. They're freebasing it, which is the story behind the rise of Marlboro. Marlboro cigarettes were reintroduced in the 1950s and that I'll, I can get to that later. But let's go back to the late 19, 1800s. So flu curing is discovered. Then they have this incredibly profitable new product, flu cured leaf. And you don't need very much of it. So how do we get it to consumers? This is an age of industrialization and mechanization. There's a, there's a, a desire to figure out how to produce a much uh, more easily packaged and easily smoked product, i.e. the cigarette. So there's a tournament. There's a tournament launched in your neck of the woods to figure out how to create a machine cigarette rolling contraption. And that's the and that results in the the discovery of or the the patent by James Bonsack in the late 1800s of the first cigarette rolling machine and James Duke of Duke University lore and of the British American Tobacco Corporation, James Duke, hears about this contraption, signs an exclusive deal with Bonsack, and starts rolling cigarettes hmm. and pushing out uh, all of his, all of the hand rollers he had hired. So this is also a story of labor and kind of economy of scale and, re- and reducing labor costs. We see that all the way up till today. And then James Duke starts making a huge amount of money selling cigarettes in the United States and he sees an infinite capacity to make cigarettes, infinite capacity with these machines and the machines become faster and more effective. And now we have machines that produce extraordinary quantities of cigarettes per minute. And Duke takes it upon himself to figure out where he's going to be able to sell more cigarettes anywhere else in the world uh, than possible. And he targets China. 
There's a, a story that's been repeated uh, by a number of people, including one of your f- recent guests, uh, John Pomfret, about James Duke targeting China and saying, I want to sell a lot more cigarettes. Bring me an atlas. I want to see where more people live than anywhere else in the world. <laughs> and that's where we're going to sell cigarettes. And he makes that decision, which makes him untold fortunes and uh, allows him to create universities and other things. And is responsible for triple five cigarettes still being one of the uh, most common brands in China, despite not being smoked anywhere else, I assume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So around the same time, hand-rolled cigarettes start to appear in Guangdong, brought in from the Philippines, filled with flu-cured tobacco. And then with James Duke's investment in China, we see machines being imported into China. And in the 1920s and 1930s, big investment in trying to sell cigarettes. At first, it's, it's, it's hard going. Cigarettes are not immediately welcomed and smoked in large quantities. One of the ways that they're able to change all of that, and it's, um, there's some great historical accounts of this, is big investments by Duke in particular, but by other companies like the Nanyang, Nanyang Brothers Tobacco Corporation out of Hong Kong, in building these multi-layered media and advertising systems that includes investments in cinemas, newspapers, graphic design shops, uh, penny presses. And in the 1930s, you have a rich experimental world of of tobacco media in China and these companies vying for kind of for symbolic dominance across China and they help usher in a lot of the media that we have come to know as kind of just part and parcel of the media landscape of China. Absolutely. And this also happened in the United States. Advertising in the United States as a as a profession takes off with tobacco. And uh, Carl Crow is involved in some of the story in China, isn't he? Uh, the American ad man. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. So, you know, we spend time in China today. Everything is advertised. But in the 1910s, 1920s, not much was advertised. They start putting tobacco advertisements everywhere. And there's, you know, accounts of these real backwater locations where people are describing in the 1930s gorgeous, beautiful, technocolor advertisements for Hotman cigarettes and all these other brands, pirate cigarettes and all of these brands that... um, Can can you actually talk about some of these amazing brand names, Matthew? I mean, because they're really some very (laughs) colorful brand names that cigarettes have been sold under in China. Yeah. So, you know, in the in the 20s and 30s, there are hundreds and hundreds of brand names. And a lot of them are trying to monetize local symbolism of rocks and birds and lovely uh, things that people uh, like to surround themselves with. But you also have a new patois of symbolism having to do with nation state that you know the rise of chinese nationalism patriotism uh new notions of gender and sexuality of of, of both men and women but a lot of uh advertising and imagery and package design in the pre-49 period profiled women with chi pows and many of your listeners have seen these images so Come 49, a lot of this is shut down and changed. And we see a kind of clearing out of a lot of the more clearly bourgeois 
imagery. And we also see a clearing out of a lot of the images that have featured women in the advertising visual culture around profiling women as either kind of sexual sexual objects for male smokers to Google or to for to draw in female smokers. We see a clearing out of that. Yeah, Matthew, uh, this is this is detailed in a chapter in, in the book by Carol Benedict, you know, the, how it went from this sort yeah. of bourgeois luxury to this simple proletarian pleasure. Uh, she also talks about how with the communist victory, uh, tobacco use became, as you were saying, very gendered in the way that it still remains today. Can you talk a little bit about that transition, about how it became so, sure. such the preserve of males and became just something that was sort of taboo for many women is decidedly unfeminine? Yeah. And Kaiser, it's great you gave a shout out to Carol Benedict. I mean, she's been working in this area for a number of years and she, she wrote a, a fabulous book that chronicled a lot of what what we in this editor volume are chronicling from kind of the 1930s forward, she chronicled from, you know, about the 1700s all the way up to the early 20th century. But she joined this collective of authors and provided us uh, some fresh research where she went and looked at Chinese newspapers, communist newspapers, and a variety of other kind of gray material pamphlets and things like that, calendars. And what she found, you know, strong evidence of is what a number of us knew intuitively was that there was a clearing out of the visual culture featuring women after 49, but that advertising didn't disappear. You know, the image of, that many of us have is, you know, after 49, advertising goes away. That's not the huh. case. There was still quite a bit of advertising, but the advertising was much uh, for tobacco was 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 very male and it became very much tied in with communist ideology and formulas and campaigns of the moment. So in the 1950s, you have brands called Leap and you have brands called Manual Labor <laughs> and you have there are a lot of brands that are produced. And what happens after 49 is the industry is nationalized and control is given largely to each province, to each provincial people's government to manage their provincial level industry. And a lot of protectionism emerges between provinces. And so each province becomes kind of a fiefdom unto itself and they're producing all kinds of brands. And there's all kinds of experimentation and brands change. I mean, we are used to a lot of brand continuity in our lives. This was a time when brands were just constantly changing in the 1950s and the 1960s. So it's a really fascinating cultural chapter. Hmm. And cigarettes become no longer a luxury good, but they really what they shift into is they become a product that is understood as ultimately a right of citizenship. A right as like in R-I-T-E? sugar. Like sugar, like rice, like all these things because... Oh, no, like a right, R-I-G-H-T. Yeah. It becomes uh, uh, something for which ration coupons are issued in the 1950s, which are tied to residency and locality. And uh, families have the right to cash in these coupons or to trade them for other kinds of coupons. But it, it becomes a component of citizenship. Uh, which is part of the story of how the cigarette becomes normalized into everyday life. Mm, mm. 
So, uh, Matthew, the first full chapter is devoted, interestingly enough, to tobacco in the communist base area of Yan'an, where Mao and yeah. gang spent many years following the Long March. Right. Can you talk about that and whether it established some kind of pattern or posture towards cigarettes or even towards uh, the production uh, more broadly in the years after the Japanese surrender as the Red Army took and held more territory in northern China? Yeah, right, right. So... To remind everybody, Communist Party is lo- is founded in what? Wait, twenty one. Yeah, nineteen twenty one. Nineteen twenty one. Communist Party is founded in twenty one, and uh, battles break out between the communists and the nationalists. Communists uh, are on the run, and they establish these base areas. Yan'an being the most famous after the Long March, but there are base areas that they establish over the next twenty years or so in different parts of the country. And these become administrative problems and questions for the communist regime about how to manage the local population, how to provide people with the resources they need to prosper and to be able to bring revolution to the rest of the country. And many of these communists, the young communists from cities who go out to these base areas are are already cigarette smokers and they want tobacco. And, uh, you know, Mao is a well-known smoker, and but it wasn't just Mao. It was uh, the kind of rank and file of Communist Party members who are incredibly high rates of smoking. So there's a, there's a desire for it. But then there's also a, a whole financial phenomenon, which is they want this tobacco, and there becomes this strum and drum about whether or not the administrative entities running these base camps should allow these communist members to to bring in tobacco and buy tobacco at high prices that gets brought in from other parts of the country. And the sentiment is that, you know, we need to become self-sufficient and we need to become self-sufficient in tobacco. So what we've come to understand through research by people like Liu Wenan, who's one of the co-editors of this volume and wrote that fascinating chapter, is that these base areas had cigarette factories. From the very, very early on, the Communist Party understood that cigarette production was part of their charge of creating an environment that was financially sound and that satisfied the needs and desires of the people. And so these factories were created, and then there was also um, restrictions set up on on not being able to import tobacco from other parts of the country. You had to smoke locally. You had to buy locally. There were charges, uh, high tariffs placed. And this, to answer your question, becomes somewhat of a template, becomes somewhat of a template for the creation in the early 1950s of a nationalized, a nationalized tobacco economy. That is fascinating. Uh, you mentioned Liu Wenan, um, and his, his chapter on Yan'an actually talks about how uh, later in, in 53, I think it was, the Ministry of Health actually, you know, went after tobacco. They tried to make abstention, you know, part yeah. of, of health policy, but Mao actually intervened to squash this. Why? I mean, was it just personal? I mean, he was a pretty heavy, heavy smoker. Was that, was that, you know, hey, tobacco's not bad, Let's, or was it, you know, the reliance on on the funds that it was already bringing in on on the the tax revenues or what what was it this is a puzzle and this is something i've actually been working on just over the last couple of weeks for a, another volume that i'm working on so what happens is in 53 the minister of health she's this remarkable individual 
I'm just starting to understand her biography. She was a feminist firebrand going back to the 1920s when she's tied when her personal biography gets caught up with the YMCA and she starts to develop a professional profile around providing health and benefits to women, to mothers, to children. She goes on to found the China Women's Association in Chongqing with a hundred other women. She marries a warlord and um, the two of them have, they're like this power couple in China. And the two of them have a falling out. The warlord had a relationship with Chiang Kai-shek, has a falling out with Chiang Kai-shek. And um, they come to the United States for two plus years, spending much of it at UC Berkeley. Go Bears, yeah. This is um, in uh, the late 1940s. And she returns to China. Her warlord husband dies in a boat accident, in a ship accident on his way back to China. She returns to China and she's made the first first minister of health. And she has it in her mind, in large part based on her personal experience and background and ties to the YMCA, which had a very staunch anti-tobacco, anti-cigarette platform, that she wanted to put on the docket for the rollout of the Ministry of Health's first waves of health promotion, smoking cessation. Mao catches wind of this, and he's going to have nothing to do with it. And he shuts it down, and he doesn't just shut it down. He enlists the Central Committee to put out a document, which Liu Wenan mentions, and uh, I've been writing about in greater length. Yeah, the directive. He put, yeah. puts out a document that says these kinds of, of edicts coming from the national level, if and when they happen, they should be resisted and repealed. And that um, God. this is... Uh, something that at every level of governance should be avoided. Now, why? Why? Now, I think there's definitely a part of the Seneca audience and a, a consumers of Chinese history who would want to say, you know, ah, one more example of how, you know, Mao didn't care about the Chinese people. It didn't matter to him if if people died. You know, what I see is a story of, I, I, I'm not sure how to to speak about that, but what I do know is that, and what we do know historically is Mao had made a number of pronouncements about tobacco going back to the 1920s. One of his very first essays as a young founding member of the Chinese Communist Party was an essay about tobacco taxes where he rails against the nationalists for, and he uses this salty language of, <laughs> of accepting British American tobacco and taking the farts farts of British American tobacco and seeing it as glorious scent. Um, and what he rails against the nationalists for not properly taxing the British American Tobacco Corporation and says this is malfeasance of governance. A proper nation would tax tobacco and would recognize that foreign tobacco companies uh, need to be tightly controlled and then fast forward to the early 1950s, 1940, 1950, he endorses the nationalization of the tobacco industry. And he writes in the marginalia of that, that plan where he endorses it, 
that you don't smoke foreign-made cigarettes, right? Good Chinese communist members, right? Good party officials won't smoke foreign cigarettes. They'll only uh, smoke local cigarettes, and only only ones produced by by the state, not by private firms, right? On top of that, right? That's right. That's right. And you know, I see this as you know, Mao was a Marxist. Mao was a materialist. Mao was a political economist of sorts. <laughs> Of sorts, of sorts, and a really bad political economist, right. as we know, a really, really bad political economist. But he he did uh, at least in that period, and then then he becomes this culture revolution ideologue, you know, egoist, as we as we know. But and there was some of that going back to the as we know in the late 1940s and early 50s. But what I've been trying to understand is. Vis-a-vis tobacco, what is life? What is the good life? And what is a meaningful life? And there's an ongoing set of questions, and you hear this from smokers in China today. I smoke. I like it. It makes me happy. It, for me, it's a, it raises the quality of my life, and it provides me you know, a hao shenghua. And that's a way of thinking about life. Well, another way of thinking about life is the biological life, which you know, tobacco is incredibly corrosive to. Now, Back in 4950, how much was it understood by Mao and others? How corrosive was tobacco? There's no reason to assume that they had a, a, a good appreciation. I don't of think it. there is because I don't. I don't think people do now. I mean, you know, one of the uh, as a former heavy right. smoker, I mean, the number of times that uh, Chinese people, men always, have told me that, yeah, I mean, look at Deng and Mao, how old they lived, and they were chain smokers, and yeah, you know, it's Westerners don't eat properly. Right. That's why, they, yeah, yeah. you know, it, uh, there is a very <laughs> fundamental belief among a lot of people that smoking is not particularly bad for you. <laughs> I think I, I would be willing to say that as a fact. Right. So Kaiser, why? I think part of what Mao understood was that that period of the early 20th century when Chinese reformers and Chinese intellectuals were trying to understand how countries outside of China became so powerful. There was you know, study and appreciation and a realization of the role of tobacco as an element to the rise of, of rich nation states. And that goes to our own story of U.S. revolution and the U.S. independence, because, you know, Alexander Hamilton, known for many things, including a great play recently, um, he, you know, he set forth a set of political economic principles relating to tobacco and other kinds of industries, which was that we need you need to have a strong national industry and that some kinds of industries are especially important. And tobacco was identified and controlled in the United States. And tobacco taxes became a fundamental element of the building of the U.S. government. And this was written about, and there's a whole, you know, schools of political, economic, and national development thought that go back to Hamilton and that were widely available Mm -hmm. and consumed uh, in China and much more widely available than kind of strong empirical information about the harms of tobacco. So the YMCA was pushing um, a kind of an anti-tobacco set of uh, platforms, but it was mostly really moralistic like you know smoking breeds disrepute and ba- and bad behavior <laughs> that's what was being pushed and what mao was exposed to and what chiang hai shek in the new life movement was also pushing right right you right. know mao wasn't going to ha- he was not going to have that 
Well, let's let's skip up toward toward the present. Let's bring this forward. Um, sure. You know, one of the things that you you mentioned, and I think this is this is really fascinating. I, w- I want to talk about the organization of the tobacco industry in China. I don't know that everyone is aware, for instance, yep. that the, the State Tobacco Monopoly Administration and the China National Tobacco Corporation are actually the same thing. You know, an administration, the yeah. regulator, yeah. is a corporation. Uh, you know, I mean, what's significant yeah. about the fact that it goes by both of these monikers? I mean, the fact that I mean, it's 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 sort of emblematic of the conflation between these two things, right? Between its its regulation and its its uh, its commercial drive, right? That's right. That's right. I'm not quite sure what role it plays. I it actually, I I mean, I write about it in the book, and I say that there's a con- clearly a conflation, and and it it helps us as outsiders say, you know. This, you can see how the State Tobacco Monopoly Administration is at once a, a corporation, but also a government organ. What, what it what it does mean, it, it, you know, a significant aspect of that is that it, it means that it's a much harder beast to tame. It's so deeply embedded in the state, and the profits from it are so dramatic that it makes it for a really challenging thing to control. And I imagine like all state corporations, it's sort of hydra-like. My first, very first night in, in Beijing was spent in, uh, at what the time was called the Ch- China Tobacco Mansions, sure. which was a hotel owned by the China National Tobacco Corporation, which now it, it's now <laughs> called the Golden Leaves Hotel. But uh, uh, there must be thousands of businesses like that that aren't actually yeah. directly cigarettes that you know various bits of these two entities control. But it is uh, really fascinating that uh, you talk about how the state tobacco uh, monopoly administration has so carefully studied what their counterparts in the United States and other markets have tried Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. deflect criticism and, uh, 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 as you put it, diffuse public opinion. Can you talk about some of the methods that they have copied? Sure. So this is beautifully chronicled at the end of the Poisonous Pandas volume by my colleague Ui Chun and some of the people that she works with. So China signs onto the Framework Convention of Tobacco Control, this WHO Global Treaty, in 2003. You know, more information is getting in China. Tobacco is becoming increasingly part and parcel of uh, public health campaigns. Ministry of Health is pushing it. The tobacco industry... State Tobacco Monopoly Administration, China State Tobacco Corporation, becomes quite anxious about China joining the WTO and China signing on to the FCTC. They want to protect their jobs, protect their profit margins, and continue the growth trajectory that they've enjoyed for decades. They uh, study very carefully, very, very carefully what companies like Philip Morris... Browns and William, Reynolds did starting around 1953-54. Yeah, they, they, they study it. And um, I had an opportunity uh, during 2005-2006 to get into the library of the Yunnan Tobacco Research Institute. And inside the library... It's filled with English language volumes and industry journals, all in English, chronicling what the U.S. and European British American Tobacco and some of the other companies did in the nineteen, uh, starting in the nineteen fifties. And what they did in the night, starting in the nineteen fifties, was uh, create a 
huge media campaign to confound and confuse people about the actual harms of tobacco. They um, started funding academics across the across the U.S. and other countries. We see this starting to happen in China. Wow! And one of the the chapters of the volume, the Poisonous Pandas volume, written by Gan Chuan and Stan Glantz, chronicles exactly that: that the tobacco industry in China starts heavily funding academics across the country to help produce science for them that is beneficial to their their claims. And what are their claims? Well, their claims their claims are that just like in the United States, they are conscientious industries which are constantly trying to innovate to make a safer cigarette. So we see the rise of low-tar cigarettes. Right. We see the rise <laughs> of filtered cigarettes in China. We see the rise of light cigarettes, mark, cigarettes marketed as light across China. And this supercharges cigarette sales. So from the 1980s, as I said, from the 1980s to the to 2012, we see profits and taxes go from a billion dollars a year to 140 billion dollars a year. This exactly coincides with this uh, this campaign, and in, in particular, low tar is extremely extremely successful in China. And quite commonly today, you know, people, you talk to anybody, they'll say, you know, low-tar cigarettes are safer. Filtered cigarettes are safer. Uh, and this is all the rhetoric of the industry. So they copy that. What else? Interference, you know, just getting up in the grill of any administrator who's trying to generate new kinds of health promotion. They just get up. They just... Most recently, Hangzhou was about to launch a ban on smoking in public places like a number of other cities have done but it was watered down and significantly changed and what we have now in the city of Hangzhou is a largely ineffectual ban on smoking in public places and so do they also do they also get up the grill of anti-tobacco campaigners i mean a lot of the, the people who contributed to your book uh, I'm not sure whether they're still Chinese yeah. nationals, but I assume that at least some of them are. Uh, these people who are are writing who are actively opposed, um, you know, to tobacco use, are they being you know trailed and and harassed by the nefarious agents of the SCMA? Yeah, that's a really good question. Thankfully, up till now, there's not much evidence of that. Um, you know, I've I've heard from colleagues in the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control in Beijing, the Chinese Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, that at times they've been asked to modulate their language, but uh, I haven't heard from colleagues that they've been directly harassed. And I think part of it is the industry is doing so well, so well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's not exactly against the ropes, right? And the amount of money that they're generating is so enormous that it would be really to their detriment to be threatening people because it would create a media storm that would that would that would hurt their cause, and they're just doing. F yeah, and they don't need it. And do they have any champions among the within the, within the current leadership? Are there any people within yeah. the current leadership who are sort of prominent champions of anti-smoking? So the top officials in the Chinese Communist Pantheon today are largely non-smokers. They're relatively few smokers. Now, but that wasn't your question, was it? So your question were, are there champions? So, you know, Xi Jinping 
has and the and the Xi family with Xi and Peng Liuan have been helping public health advocates inside of China. There there was a, a tax that was added to tobacco in 2015, which was seen as a major, major breakthrough. And it had an immediate effect. We saw a decline for the first time in 20 years in annual sales of cigarettes in China. Wow. And, and that tax was greenlighted by Xi Jinping. I've heard direct from sources who are directly involved in those communications. He, he made a decision and suddenly, it, it very quickly, it, it happened. And there had been calls for raising taxes on tobacco for, for quite some time, raising the rates that a pack of tobacco is, is taxed at. Because clearly there's ample evidence, empirical evidence around the world that shows that you raise the price of a pack of cigarettes and consumption goes down. Right. And Peng Liyuan has joined in as a ambassador, an ambassador to the WHO uh, for tobacco. And if you search online, you'll see pictures of her and Bill Gates wearing these kind of dorky T-shirts, which say, <laughs> secondhand smoke, I won't, uh, I won't allow it. But there are also pictures, if you search, of Xi Jinping touring cigarette factories in Kunming. Mm-hmm. Where something like, what, 80% of, of Yunnan's revenue at least at, at, in the 90s, I think it was, was actually from tobacco, huh? That's right. Yeah, That's yeah, right. Yeah. That's right. So clear, strong advocates... People who have made this a major issue, a pet project. No, no, No. not that I know of. Hmm. So, Matthew, what is it that you and the other contributors to this volume ultimately call for? What is the approach that you would advocate? That's a good question. I'm I'm not sure I I feel comfortable speaking for all of them. Um, Just for you then. Just you yourself. What what, what do you think should be, what, what is to be done? Yeah, what is to be done? So I think uh, to be done is, and this is not just for China, this is, all right, this is the number one cause of preventable death around the world. And three times more cigarettes today are being consumed worldwide than were in 1960. Wow. Okay. In 1960, <laughs> when we think that you know public attention to the dangers of smoking really starts to hit popular consciousness, from that period to the present day, we have a... a Cigarettes worldwide growing by, growing uh, tripling, in consumption. So this is this is a big problem, largely because yes. developing smoking countries smoking are smoking. Long. So what what needs to happen is I think um, this kind of global and then local approach to tobacco needs to pay much more attention to supply. Uh, I, I I completely endorse. Uh, efforts to try to raise consciousness among individual smokers, uh, but without a approach that equally pays attention to supply, well, can it's, you really it's a do? really yeah. hard case to make. Because you're talking about the one of the most addictive substances on the planet, and that there's almost there's trillions and trillions of cigarettes produced a year around the world. They're just everywhere. So, and it's. The only product that's legal today around the world in every country, perhaps except Bhutan, it's the only product legal in almost every country in the world, which if used exactly as designed, will kill half of its users. The only one. So attention needs to be paid to supply and efforts need to be made to really call to account both the industry and the governments that are 
that are working hand in hand. That's 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 great, Matthew. Uh, Matthew, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about this really, you know, it's vitally important issue. Um, I hope that everyone gets hold of a copy of this excellent volume, Poisonous Pandas. It's it's really good. It's like Jeremy said at the beginning. It's not. Uh, just academic. I mean, there's one chapter we didn't get a chance to, to, to talk about where, uh, Matthew, you, you sort of take us on a, a tour of this museum in Shanghai. Uh, and I, I highly recommend everyone read that. Uh, it's it's fascinating because, you know, it, it tells you, it, it reveals quite a bit about uh, the tobacco industry sort of wants, to, I mean, the way it wants to think of itself, which is, I think, really crucial to understanding it. But um, Matthew, thanks again. Uh, let's move on to recommendations. Uh, but before we do that, I do want to remind our listeners that the Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina. Sign up for SubChina's premium access service and you can tap directly into our digital newsroom and harangue Jeremy and the reporters and editors at all hours. He loves it. Uh, join in for special chat sessions also with guests that we have on our Slack channel. Uh, you can also get early commercial free releases of the Cynical Podcast. And if you like our podcast, as I hope you do, make sure to give us a positive rating and write a nice review for us at the iTunes store. Uh, so now let's let's move on to recommendations. Jeremy, why don't you kick us off? Okay, this one I'm afraid is only for people who live in the United States. Um, it is something, I guess maybe all Americans know about it, but I'm an immigrant, so I, I just found out recently. The Arbor Day Foundation. If you join this Arbor Day Foundation, they send you trees like, uh, you know, small trees that you can plant. Uh, and uh, then they send other people trees with the money you give them. So it's uh, it's really nice. So if you want some trees, join the, uh, you can go to arborday.org. That's great. Uh, that's, I, I hadn't never, I had, I'm an American. I grew up here. I didn't know about that. It's an excellent recommendation. Thanks, Jeremy. I've been um, on a tree kick recently. So yeah, that's, that's a great one, particularly. Matthew, you're up. What do you have for us? Sure. So I would like to give a shout out, first off, just to the anthropology of China. I think there's just some amazing work being done by colleagues these days. And there's a real effort among these colleagues to write books like Poisonous Pandas that can be easily accessed and that are um, writerly in style that uh, people um, outside of kind of the day-to-day -day life of the academy can pick up. And so I just want to kind of encourage people to seek out these kinds of materials. The culture anthropology of China and medical anthropology of China is just there's fantastic work being done. And these are people who devote years and years and years, heavy, you know, lengthy stays. So uh, there's that. But I also recently saw a fantastic documentary by Walter Sales. It's on Netflix and it's a uh, the title is Jia Jiang uh, a guy from Fenyang. <laughs> and I know uh, Seneca, uh, Jeremy, and Kaiser, you've had some uh, episodes where you've profiled the work of Jia Jiang And this film does just a beautiful job at uh, t exposing us to this amazing mainland director, uh, auteur. film yeah. auteur, yeah. who grew up in this town of Fenyang in Shanxi province and has risen to global renown as arguably China's very best filmmaker today. And uh, the documentary, you can find it on Netflix and probably can find it other places as well, does uh, a really nice job at taking us on a, initially kind of a walking tour with Jia Jiangke back to the town of Fenyang and uh, intersplices interviews with Jia Jiangke with segments from footage 
pulled from his earliest films, films like Shaou and Platform, which came out in 97 and 2000. Matthew, do you understand those? I mean, do you understand the accent? I have such trouble. I have to read the subtitles, and then, of course, you know, I have to freeze it constantly. To I, got, I have to use the subtitles. Right, right. Yeah, I have to use the subtitles. Really? But sales, you know, in the interview with Jia Jiangke, I mean, he, Jia Jiangke explains the method to the madness of using these local dialects because he became frustrated with what he saw as kind of a a whitewashing, uh, a erasure of kind of the local vibe and feel of uh, experience in different parts of the country and what he saw being produced as he was kind of rising up through the film academy of just more and more films that were, you know, where people, everybody was speaking with beautiful Mandarin as if they were announcers for CCTV. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know... Uh, so no, I can't yeah, understand no, I, most I, of it. Yeah. I, 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 but I, geez, I, I think I, really I see his point. Hard. Definitely going to check that documentary out. Yeah. But you know, when Jia Ku is being interviewed by Sales, Jia Ku is speaking beautiful Mandarin, and I, it was such a pleasure to hear him talk and to be able to understand oh, everything. So, okay, my turn. Uh, I want to recommend first this astonishing interactive resource that Matthew and, and I guess your colleagues have, have put together. It's called Cigarette Citadels. Uh, and you can find it very easily if you just Google cigarette citadels map. Uh, it's this global map of cigarette production. And, you know, with each of these little points, you can sort of click in and find out about, you know, these local cigarette manufacturers you can see where they're clustered around the world you can see you know what countries uh where it's it's particularly problematic cigarette citadels uh it's it's fascinating i spent like like an hour on it today just just sort of clicking around uh my second maybe less interesting recommendation is david sedaris's new book calypso uh, but on audiobook because um, the real joy of david sedaris is actually listening to to him read his own stuff, right? <laughs> so uh, I don't know if he's everyone's cup of tea, but I, I he still cracks me up. So Matthew, thanks thanks once again for, for joining us and taking the time. Yeah, thank you, Matthew. And I, I also, I think now that we've got to the end of the show, I have to say that, you know, possibly about 10 years ago before I was married and had children and gave up smoking, I would have thought you were the most appalling yeah. person, <laughs> you know, Californian coming to China, ruining everything. Where, you know, Chairman Mao, if he did one thing right, was make it a paradise for smokers. I would have been appalled. But as a reformed smoker who now lives in the buckle of the Bible Belt, um, I am very glad to have this opportunity to. It have was an immense to you. pleasure and uh, <laughs> a fulfillment of a of a desire for years and years to get an opportunity to be on your podcast. You guys do amazing work. You bring joy and fascinating tidbits and really important content to a broader audience. And all of us who work on China, who think about China, have a I have a big debt. That is so super kind of you, Matthew. Thank you so much. And we hope to talk to you again. I'm just, you know, keep us updated on, on the work that you're doing. You've got a new monograph coming out. I'd love to love to check it out. Jeremy, great to talk to you, man. Yeah. Thanks, Matthew. Thank Kaiser. Thank you. All right. And do not succumb to the temptation of going and having a cigarette now. <laughs> <laughs>
I won't blame you if you do. <laughs> the Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Gua and Jeremy Goldcorn and is edited by me. Drop us an email at Cynica at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And do check out the other shows in our growing stable of podcasts. There are going to be some new shows coming up at the end of the summer, and we're very excited about this. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care. Take care.